Okay. Well, I am uh, really excited as we have the opportunity to study God's Word. Uh, what is God going to do through His Word today? There's always a uh, kind of eager anticipation as we open up this book because we know it's not just another book. And God is alive and active, and he works through his word. And so I can't wait to see how God is going to work through his word today, though it's going to take a little thinking. So I hope that you're ready to think. The Bible, in some ways, is uh, simple. The message is simple, and yet it's also a big book, and we serve a great God. And so understanding the Bible uh, sometimes takes a little bit of work, and so I hope that you're ready uh, ready to work. You're going to need to work. I'm not going to be surprised if after you have some questions, and actually I think that's kind of good. I hope that even as we look at this passage today that you go away and that you think a little bit about it. I think that's part of how God designed his word to work is to cause us to think, and uh, I want you to go away and meditate and ask questions, even of this passage. So if you'll uh, take your Bible uh, and open, if you haven't already, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 6, verses 1 uh, through 11, and we're going to be talking a little bit about rituals, uh, rituals, things that you do a certain way because some authority in your life has told you to do them that way, and we're uh, talking about rituals because uh, Luke chapter 6 up to verse 11, uh, Luke chapter 5, are a, a series of stories that Luke has brought together to help us know what was going wrong with the Pharisees, who were some of the religious leaders of Jesus' day. And it has something to do with their approach to religious rituals. So a, a little context, Jesus is preaching the kingdom of God, end of Luke chapter 4, that's why he's here, which is really good news, because he's going around telling Israel that God is keeping all the promises he made in the Old Testament, which the Pharisees, the religious leadership of Israel, would have said that they were longing for. This is something you would have expected them to be excited about. But by the middle of chapter 6, we're going to see Jesus choosing 12 apostles. And that, we'll see when we get there, is Jesus basically saying... You know, it's like we need to start Israel all over again. And when he starts Israel over again, he is bypassing the religious leadership, which is a real rebuke to Israel and to the religious leadership, obviously. And we need to know why before we get there to Jesus choosing the 12 and bypassing the religious leadership. Luke is helping us understand why. What had gone wrong? And we have to really look and think. It takes a little bit of thinking because the Pharisees seem to be getting a lot of things right, actually. I know we uh, typically go to the Pharisees and are like, oh, they're so bad. But it's not really that simple because from the outside, they actually looked pretty good. In fact, if I could somehow take you back to Israel in the days of Jesus and you were looking around, you might have thought out of all the people in Israel, the people Jesus would have had the most in common with would have been the Pharisees. And Luke brings these stories together, I think, to explain the difference. And we look at the stories and we see that the difference had something to do with their approach to rituals. We can start there at least. There is a conflict 
between Jesus and the Pharisees in these stories, and you can see the heart of the conflict by looking at their approach to rituals. So, for example, uh, Jesus eating with sinners, that was back in Luke chapter 5, verses 27 through 32, that had something to do with a ritual. They didn't think, the Pharisees, that you should eat with sinners because they had certain rituals, uh, people you were supposed to eat with, food that you were supposed to eat. I mean, this was all scripted for them. And then he's not fasting, Jesus. And they think he should fast, and that is a ritual. Fasting is a ritual. They had certain times, days for fasting, a way you fasted. And then he's doing something on the Sabbath that they don't think he should do because they had certain rituals for what you were supposed to do and not do on the Sabbath. And uh, by the end, they're so angry at Jesus over these differences that they're trying to figure out what to do to him. So this was a big deal to them, and it's a big deal to Jesus. And we're looking at this and thinking about rituals, their approach to rituals, and trying to figure out what they're getting wrong and why they're getting it wrong, which is not merely a historical question either. And I want you to understand that. This is not just like an academic kind of question, a, a theoretical question, a historical question, a hypothetical question, like, what's wrong with the Pharisees? Now I know that. This is actually super relevant. There is an approach to rituals that does serious spiritual damage. And we see that in Luke's day, actually. That was a real threat as Luke was writing this gospel. I think that's probably part of why he includes these particular stories, because you remember, he didn't write the gospel of Luke at the exact moment it was happening. He did the research and all that, but he wrote it maybe 30 years later. And one of the biggest issues in the church at that time had to do with how the church was to think about rituals, specifically some Old Testament rituals. There was an approach to rituals, especially religious rituals, that was tripping the early church up. I mean, I, I brought this up the last time we were in Luke a couple weeks ago, but take the book of Galatians as an example, because this is probably the most intense book in the, old, in the New Testament, Galatians. If you were going to say, what book in the New Testament did the writer write and almost seem angry? You would say Galatians. Paul is hot in Galatians, and you know why. What is Galatians about? It's about a certain wrong approach to rituals. There are these people who think to be a faithful Christian, you have to do a certain Old Testament ritual. And they went to Galatia, the churches that Paul started, and they were trying to get the churches to do it. And Paul hears about it. And he's like, no, no, you do that ritual that way for that reason. And you're going to lose the whole gospel. Which sounds a little like Jesus, actually, as he's talking to the Pharisees in Luke. You remember he says at the end of chapter 5, he makes this illustration in verse 36. He says, no one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he'll tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. Which sounds funny to us, I think, because we don't use wineskins anymore. But at the very least, this means, you know what? This is a big deal. <laughs> 
He's talking to Pharisees about fasting, about their approach to rituals, uh, this ritual fasting and his approach. And he's saying, this is not just like a minor debate over the details. These two approaches are incompatible. <laughs> so this is like a glimpse into something bigger. There is an approach to religious ritual that on the outside can seem attractive to us as Christians even, which is actually incompatible with the gospel. Which still doesn't, I know, maybe hit home with us as being as serious an issue as, as much as it maybe should with, with all that. We're not still, we're still not maybe thinking, what's my approach to ritual? Partially uh, because we don't have many people trying to get us to do Old Testament rituals to earn favor with God. And also maybe partially because we don't think of our lives in terms of ritual, really. Like, I don't really do rituals. So we read the Old Testament and we're like, you know, these people had a lot of rituals, but we don't have many rituals. Which is funny because the reality is our lives are filled with rituals. All kinds of rituals. It would be like, you know, uh, us saying we don't have many rituals. It would be like sitting down with Aaron from the Old Testament with like his high priestly garb on. And he's like, I don't think I do many rituals. And we're like, what are you talking about? All you do is rituals. We have so many rituals. The difference is that uh, many of ours are not as religious on the outside. But just because we aren't living in the same kind of culture they were, that's a nation, a religious nation, doesn't mean we don't have authorities in our lives prescribing rules about what we do and don't do with our bodies, which is a ritual, basically. What you do or don't do with your body that someone else tells you to do or not do with your body. And we've got all kinds of them, actually. I would guess we have as many rules if, if we would start writing them down as they did in the Old Testament. The difference is that most of ours aren't overtly religious. And if we didn't realize that already, the past couple years should have proved it because you know uh, we had a problem, a big problem, and what did we do? We did ritual. One way we thought we should go about solving that problem was with a ritual. The authorities said there's a ritual that we need to start. And we had to retrain a whole group of people across the world, really, in a new set of rituals, like what do you do before you enter a room filled with people? Before you enter a room filled with people, you put something over your face. And then you stand six feet apart. And after you shake hands, you carry a little bottle in your pocket filled with liquid, and you put some of it on your hands. Those are rituals that in the past would have seemed strange to people, and maybe to some people still do. And yet the thing is, even if you didn't like those particular rituals, and a lot of people didn't, but even if you didn't, even the most anti-ritual person has rituals. Because that's just part of how humans work. People have been telling you things to do or not to do with your body since you were born. So uh, from babyhood, really, you have been learning rituals, like brushing your teeth. You know, brushing your teeth is a kind of, of ritual. If I wrote down how to brush your teeth and tried to explain it to someone who wasn't familiar, it would sound a little strange, but it seems normal to us. And yet, we haven't always done it that way. We haven't always brushed our teeth once a day. That was something that someone got started. Some people say it was the US Army, actually, back in the early 1900s, because 
Too many uh, people were applying to be a soldier without enough teeth. But however it happened, it wasn't just like you were four and you were like, why don't I put something on a stick and push it across my teeth for several minutes, twice a day, every day. No, you brush your teeth because there were people out there who wanted you to brush your teeth and have done work to get you to brush your teeth twice a day, but that's a ritual. Breakfast is a ritual too, you know, and, and different countries do breakfast differently. But we've been taught a certain way to do breakfast here by certain people who want us to eat breakfast that way. Every time you get in a car as well, there are certain things you are supposed to do and there are people wanting you to do that who have told you to do that. And that's a ritual. Our lives are literally filled with rituals. There are all kinds of things that we do that we haven't really thought about why we do them, who's telling us to do them or how we do them, but we're really committed to them. And if they get tweaked, or messed with, it messes with us. And of course, a lot of these, new, uh, these rituals seem neutral, maybe, meaning they're not in and of themselves right or wrong, but they're powerful. Rituals are powerful. Even neutral rituals end up making an impact on us. They shape us. It's amazing, actually, what a ritual done the right way can do. I mean, you see a person and he's able to take a heart out of a body. And then he's able to put that heart back in the body and the person doesn't die. But somehow they get better. How in the world are they able to do that? Ritual had something to do with it. I guarantee you there are rituals they had to learn to be able to perform that enabled them to know how to do that. Rituals are powerful. They can take you somewhere good or bad, and I guess the thing today is that they can definitely take you some more bad, even religious rituals, even good rituals. Like with the Pharisees, seeing Jesus here and not seeing Jesus. I remember hearing about a documentary uh, they made about North Korea, apparently, and there was a, a surgeon who came in from Nepal and he did uh, eye surgery on all these North Koreans. And he trained other doctors to do the same. And the results were amazing, almost like a miracle. These people couldn't see. Then they could see. And so the filmmaker would film the moment they would take the bandages off. And of course, you know, the people, they were so excited. They were like singing. They were praising. They were like giving thanks. They were even bowing down, which is understandable, except that when the filmmaker panned out a little, you see that they weren't thanking or praising the surgeons, but they were standing in front of pictures of the dictator of North Korea and thanking him, praising him, while the doctors who performed the surgery watched, which of course seems strange to us, but totally made sense to them, maybe partially because there were soldiers looking on, I know, but also because this was a ritual they had been taught for so long from youth. And so that ritual, made it difficult for them to respond to that moment correctly. We need to think about rituals, what we do, our rituals, especially when it comes to our relationship with God, religious rituals. And it starts with our approach. That's where we have to begin. That's the fundamental thing. It would be easy if it was always like, you know, that's a bad ritual, don't do it. But it's not quite that simple because the problem with a lot of rituals is not the ritual. Like you see at the end of Luke chapter 5, where Jesus and the Pharisees are talking about fasting. And obviously the problem is not the ritual, because that is not a bad ritual, fasting. 
Jesus is for fasting. He's not against it. And yet the Pharisees are ruining fasting. And then even in Galatians, actually, with circumcision, Paul's saying, if you get circumcised, that was the ritual, you're going to end up losing the gospel. And yet in another place, Paul has someone circumcised. So it's not the ritual. It's the approach. It's the approach. The approach is huge. You have to think about your approach to what you do. And I think if we look quickly at Luke chapter 5, verses 33 uh, through 35 again, we'll see how the Pharisees were getting it wrong. So how we get rituals wrong. That's, that's first. That's where we're going to start. And then chapter 6, verses 1 through 5, why we get it wrong. Why we do that with ritual. Second. And then chapter 6, verses 6 through 11, what happens when we get this wrong? Why this is such a big deal? Third. But, but first of all, and we already talked about this, so uh, I can be quick, but how we get rituals wrong. Let me read verses 33 through 35 again of chapter 5. Luke says, and they, they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast in those days. And what Jesus is saying, basically, is that we know when it comes to things like weddings that rituals aren't really supposed to be random. This is not like super confusion, confusing. You take a one action that's appropriate somewhere, and you put it somewhere else, and it's not appropriate at all, like crying at a wedding, like crying like you're, somebody died at a wedding. And actually, you know that something is going wrong when you do the right ritual at the wrong time or in the wrong place. Because the rituals that we do are supposed to be connected to something that's happening. I remember when we lived in Africa, there was a lady, an older lady, uh, who would wear a white wedding dress around with the veil and everything. And we would see her almost every day. We'd see her shopping in the grocery store with a, a, a wedding dress with like the thing that follows it, the train, is that what they call it? She would be grocery shopping in a wedding dress. And uh, I thought, something is going wrong here. But I don't think that when I go to a wedding. Why? I'm not like, why is that lady wearing white that, with that, long, that thing that goes over her head? I never see people do that. Why is she doing that? I don't think that at a wedding. Because the ritual is supposed to be connected to something that's going on. And religious rituals are supposed to be connected to what God has promised and what God is doing through Jesus Christ. Jesus is central. Jesus is absolutely central. And this is key to getting ritual right. This is what makes Christianity, Christianity. We are saved by Jesus and what Jesus has done. This is the good news. And so the Pharisees are asking about fasting here. Which is what? What is fasting? It's not eating. <laughs> but really, fasting is connected to mourning. That's, that's what fasting really is. When someone dies, you don't eat. Uh, why? Because you're so sad. And you don't even think about eating. It's not like you're just doing that as a ritual. No, you're, you're so overwhelmed that you don't eat. And that's basically fasting. You are grieving over something in the Old Testament sin and, and the fact that Israel was in exile and you're so focused on it and you're so longing for a solution that you're not even really thinking about eating or, or you're not eating as a way of saying and reminding yourself this matters. 
And yet here are the Pharisees who are supposedly longing for the kingdom of God, and yet they're standing in front of Jesus, the Messiah, still fasting and, and mourning and asking him why he's not and thinking that makes sense when his arrival is actually what they were fasting for. This is like a kid writing a, a, a Christmas wish list for Santa on December 26th after he got what he wanted the day before. It's kind of like, you know, that, that button in elevators that says closed doors? Do you know that button, it, um, close the door? They say in New York that at least 80% of those uh, buttons don't work. So if you're on a, a button uh, elevator in New York, remember that about the, the buttons. And yet, even if you remember it and the door is open, I bet you're going to push it. Because people push them all, all the time because it makes them feel like they're doing something which you can understand when the elevator door is open. That's the thing. I, I know it doesn't work, but maybe it will work this time. It's still something to do. But when it's closed, that's different. You know the elevator door is closed, and yet you keep pushing that button, closed door, closed door, closed door, even though it's already closed. Now, that ritual, it's not merely not doing anything. It doesn't even make sense. Something is not clicking, like the Pharisees fasting when Jesus was there. Clearly, they weren't making the connection between what God was doing in the world and what they were supposed to be doing in response, which is where we need to start when we look at our rituals, if we're going to get them right. This is where we need to start. We have to say, are the things that we are doing with our minds and bodies on a regular basis matching up to what God is doing in this moment in history through his son, Jesus? which seems simple, but we have to ask that because we can look at the Pharisees and be like, you guys, you guys, you guys, why are you fasting when Jesus is there? But what does Jesus say here? Verse 35, and this is a little convicting, get ready for it. He says, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast in those days, which is when? It's now. Right? We're in those days. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. And so the Pharisees weren't happy when they should have been. They were fasting when they should have been celebrating. And yet I just wonder sometimes if we're not sad when we should be. We always want to celebrate when sometimes we should be fasting. I wonder if you look at our rituals, our daily way of living, do you see any of that? Do you see any focused, intentional groaning that should characterize the way we live right now if Jesus isn't on the earth and if things are the way they are? I remember a man named Paul Tripp asking one time, is it possible to be too content right now? And I think sort of, it sort of is. If by content you mean there's no groaning, there's no longing, if that's your expectation, that's not a right expectation. Because the world now, as it is right now, is not our home. And so there should be some homesickness. And I know it's a little tricky to talk about this correctly because the time we're living in is, is good, too, spiritually. It's good. We've got a lot of knowledge and we've got all these great things coming that we know about, and we've got every spiritual blessing, we've got the Holy Spirit, we've got each other, we have what the prophets long to have, actually, and so there's a lot of celebrating that's going on that's totally appropriate, but the thing is, the kingdom of God has not clearly been established on this earth, and so there should be some grieving, and some groaning, 
which is particularly hard for us in our culture right now. That's why I'm going on about this. Because I think in our culture right now, it's that. <laughs> we're supposed to, we think we're supposed to be happy all the time. We think this is like a fundamental right to be happy. And so if we're not happy, something is really wrong. We think something's really wrong. And it's gotta be fixed like immediately. We gotta get fixed right, right now. You gotta be happy, you gotta be happy, you gotta be happy. And we've got all these rituals that are actually connected to that, the pursuit of happiness. And some of them are no big deal, but they are funny. Like what do you do if I take out a camera right now to take a picture? Yeah. You all smile. smile. Of course, and that's not wrong, we know that, but why is it so ingrained that we do it without thinking? I just pull out a camera, you could be so serious, smiling. It's connected to how we think about life, that we're supposed to be happy all the time. If you see a picture with all kinds of people smiling and one person not smiling, what do you ask? You're like, what was wrong with you that day? This is not normal, you're supposed to be happy. Even someone asks you how you're doing, just a simple greeting. How are you supposed to respond? I'm good. I'm good. Even if you just like got run over by a car. No, I'm good. <laughs> because this is the ritual. This is how it goes. In fact, I was thinking, and this is probably maybe a little more important because those are kind of silly, but you look at a lot of Americans, and this is so core. Like it doesn't even really matter what our religion is. If an American is religious, <laughs> Uh, it doesn't really matter which religion they are because they're all pretty much thinking the same thing anyway, which is that if there's a God, what he wants most is for us to be happy and to be nice. And that's pretty much all that's important to him, really, that we're happy and nice and successful, probably, too. We should add that. And there's a name for this, even. <laughs> Scholars have come up with a name. It's called moralistic therapeutic deism. So deism, there is a God. Therapeutic, he wants you to be happy. And moralistic, he wants you to be good. And that's where the Pharisees come in. That was their approach. But the difference is that by good, in America at least, it's however you define good. And usually we define good by whatever makes us happy. So it's like we're Pharisees, but like with really low standards. <laughs> so low that we could almost take the moralistic part out of it anymore. It's just more therapeutic deism, with the main thing being happy. Your happiness is at the center and your happiness now. It's not even about eternal life anymore for most people. It's about your happiness now, which is even what matters for most people when it comes to their rituals and religious rituals. Does it make me happy? Do I enjoy it? That is number one. That's where we start all the time, which is obviously very different than where Jesus started because for Jesus, God and his glory is at the center of his approach. And what God does through Jesus is at the center of his approach. And, you know, if you're going to get rituals right as Christians, your rituals should reflect that. We can't just do, do, do. There needs to be some deliberate reflection, evaluation. We have to look at what we do and what God's done through Jesus and ask, does this make sense in light of that? Does our approach line up with the gospel? And we try to do this as a church. That's why we make a priority out of prayer, of preaching the word, evangelism. Even those meals, those fellowship meals that we have are supposed to be a ritual that reflects the gospel. But it's not enough to merely have the right rituals. We have to, to look at our approach to those rituals 
and make sure we're making the connection, which was actually what was happening with Paul in Galatians. Because you remember, they were being given a ritual. They were being told they needed to get circumcised, the Galatians. And Paul didn't have a problem with circumcision in general. The problem was why they were thinking they needed to do that ritual. You know, they were Gentiles. They were new believers. They were reading all this stuff in the Old Testament about the Jews being God's special people. They were on the margins of society. They were being persecuted by Rome. And they had people coming in and saying, yeah, there is more you need to do. There is. To really experience the full favor of God, you're going to have to get circumcised. And they were fearing those people like, okay, you seem important. You're from Jerusalem. Maybe Jesus isn't quite enough. And Paul's like, no, stop doing that ritual for that reason reason because it doesn't match up with what God's done through Jesus because he's fully justified you on the basis of Jesus and not you keeping the law. And if you do that ritual that way, you're essentially leaving Jesus. You have to make the connection. You absolutely have to make the connection. We have to make the connection because this is still a way we go wrong with rituals all the time. Now, using them to justify ourselves. This is like the fundamental mistake where we are using religious rituals to justify ourselves before God, before people, instead of responding to what God has done through Jesus. I don't know which is more common right now, actually. Using rituals primarily to make us feel happy or to justify ourselves. But either way, the basic approach is that we're supposed to be the hero of the story, which is one reason we can get stuck on rituals, even when we're doing them wrong. We're not willing to give them up or change the way we do them because they give us this illusion of control, that we are the hero. They can make us feel more important than we are, which is a real danger when it comes to religious activity in general because we want to be the hero of the story so badly. And rituals, especially religious rituals, give us a chance to feel like that. And again, the problem is not with the ritual. The problem is how badly we want to be the center of the story, that we end up distorting the ritual. And I think if we look at Luke chapter 6, verses 1 through 11, we get a hint, at least, that's why the Pharisees were doing what they were doing. As we think about rituals, we think about approach first. How were they getting it wrong? They weren't centering on Jesus. It wasn't flowing out of faith. It wasn't responding to what God was doing through Jesus. But why? Because when you, if you think about the gospel of grace and how it's all about Jesus, why would you not want that? You know? It kind of seems obvious. This doesn't seem complicated. Like, take the gift. Take the gift. Take the gift. And so the Pharisees, why would they do all this and not center on Jesus? That, that second, which is important, too, because this is the part where some of us get confused, because it's a lot they were doing, the Pharisees. It's actually a lot, a lot of good. We get to know the Pharisees as we read Luke. They put in a lot of effort, like a lot more effort than most of us. And it's easy to think that zeal must equal good. How could it not be good if they're this zealous about doing good things. But it's not always good just because we're zealously doing good things because there are a lot of bad reasons people are zealous for good things, like the Pharisees, I think. And it takes a little work to get to the bottom of this, but it always does when it comes to religious rituals. You start poking around at the approach and people always have an excuse, always. 
And the Pharisees, they would have said, I'm sure, like most people we know, they would have said, we're doing these rituals because we're so serious about the Bible. Why are you so serious about these rituals? It's the Bible. But Jesus is like, not so fast. You have to look a little closer because that is definitely not, capital N, capital O, capital G, that's definitely not what is going on. It might look like it, but it's not. And to see that, look at chapter 6, verse 1, where Luke writes, on a Sabbath. And this is where you're going to have to do a little thinking. And, and this is an illustration that this is not just about the Bible. And the illustration has to do with the Sabbath, actually. Uh, the next two stories are going to be about the Sabbath, which is where uh, Jesus had a lot of conflict with the, with, the, with the Pharisees, or at least the conflict that's recorded. When, when Luke and the other gospel writers recorded the problems the Pharisees had with Jesus, they often talked about the Sabbath. It had to do with rituals regarding the Sabbath. And I think there's a reason, obviously, for that. And one reason is because the Sabbath, if you know the Old Testament, is a big deal, a super big deal. It is the seventh day on which the nation of Israel was supposed to rest. It's really amazing if you know the story. God rescues Israel from slavery in Egypt, and then he gives them laws. And one of the first big laws he gives them is, I want you to take a whole day to chill out. I want you just to, the whole nation, everyone, once a week, I just want you to do nothing, to rest. If you look at the Old Testament, that was pretty much the command. And in the Old Testament, it's a very important command. That's the thing. So, for example, we've been looking at the Ten Commandments in the Bible Reading Project recently. And this is kind of a plug for the Bible Reading Project, actually, because if you've been coming, what I'm about to say is going to make a lot more sense, like light bulb. If you haven't been coming, I'm not going to be surprised if it's a little difficult, because what I'm about to say is, uh, is a little deep. So you, you can ask me questions afterwards. I, I don't know. I could make this really simple, this story, and, and you, it will seem simple, but you'll actually miss the point. Or I could tell you the simple answer, which is going to seem complicated to you because you're so not, we're not used to thinking this way, but it's actually pretty simple. But anyway, the, uh, if you've been coming to the Bible Reading Project recently, uh, we've been looking at the Ten Commandments, and uh, the first command, or the first couple commands, depending on how you number them, are about worshiping God correctly. And then the next command is, don't take the Lord's name in vain, which is not as much specifically about not saying bad words as it is about Israel representing God correctly. And there's some cool reasons for that we can talk about. But worship God and represent God correctly. That's how the Ten Commandments begin. And then what? How do we do that? The rest of the commands, which start with, what's the next command? The Sabbath, resting. You want to represent God, Israel? Rest. This is how you're a good representative of me. Rest. Make this part of your weekly cycle, a day of rest. Which had to do with the purpose of Israel, actually, the Sabbath. Israel was supposed to be a preview of how God was going to fix the world. God was going to use Israel to take the world back to the Garden of Eden. And what was the Garden of Eden like at the end, before Adam and Eve messed it up? It was a place of rest, satisfaction, peace. It was like one big, never-ending Sabbath, which made Israel keeping the Sabbath a super big deal. Their purpose as a nation was to represent God. 
and to give a preview of where God was going to take the world. And you see how big a deal the Sabbath was in the prophets later on in the Old Testament. If you look at the prophets, they explain why Israel got kicked out of the promised land, why they got judged, why they ended up basically the same place Adam did in exile. And when they explain why Israel was judged by God, it seems like they almost always bring up because they weren't keeping the Sabbath. And I'm sure this is what the Pharisees would have zoned in on. If you asked them, why are you making such a big deal out of the Sabbath? They would have said they were so big about the Sabbath, and they were. If you look, this was one of their main things, what you could and could not do on the Sabbath, and they made all kinds of rules about it. And they made all kinds of rules about it because of how important they knew the Sabbath to be, which is actually what they're talking about with Jesus here in Luke chapter 6, verse 1 again. On a Sabbath... While he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Which you get a little bit of that history to a certain extent kind of sounds good, right? That's the thing. We can kind of understand them asking that. But Jesus is going to say, no, it's not quite as simple as that. This is a misinterpretation of the Old Testament. Verse 3, and Jesus answered, have you not read? And he's talking about the Bible, of course. Have you not read the Bible? Which is what they were claiming to be experts in. So there's a little bit of irony going on. But Jesus is saying basically that the way they're talking, it's like they hadn't even picked up a Bible. And so it might sound good at first, their rationale, but if you look closer, you see there's a problem. And he tells a story to prove that. And the story that he proves, he tells to prove that is a little tricky for us. He's proving how they're misinterpreting the law, but his proof is a little hard for us to get. Because I think we actually think of the law more like the Pharisees. Um, so we kind of make the same mistake. And this is a long story and a long explanation and I'm not going to be surprised if you're a little confused. I know I keep saying that, which is why I come to that Bible reading project, or we can talk about it because we've been going over this over and over. But for now, I'm going to try to make it really simple and fast. The Pharisees were looking at the law and treating it like a book of statutes. Uh, here's the law. Keep the, 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 the Sabbath. And let's make a list of 300 ways you could or could not keep this law. Uh, and uh, that's how we think of law, right? That makes sense to us. When I say law, you think of uh, laws and judges, and maybe you think of this big book with this long list of do's and don'ts, and it's all really clearly spelled out. Like, there's a law, and it's very specific, and so if you're in trouble, you go to the judge, and we imagine, it's like he gets out this big book, and he looks at the law, and it's got 700 ways you could disobey it, and if you didn't do any of those, you're fine. But if you did, then you're in trouble. And of course, the Pharisees like that, because if they're making the rules, they're the ones basically in charge of the Sabbath. And if they're the ones in charge of the Sabbath, they're the ones in charge of, of Israel. But if you look back at the Old Testament, that's not really how the law was supposed to work. And I'm, I'm trying to not make this too long where I lose you. But when we read the law in the Bible, it's important to understand that it's not like we're just walking along and we pick up a law book and we start reading, like there's a random book of laws there. Those commands actually come in the middle of a story that God's telling. 
And they, they fit into that story a certain way. The law has a certain function. And so if we're going to understand the law, we need to make sure we understand the place it plays in that story. God had rescued Israel. He had saved Israel. And he was going to use Israel as a part of this big plan he had for the universe. And part of that plan involved God moving in with them. Israel was going to become like God's home. And so you know in our homes how we have rules as moms and dads living with a family. And you can imagine if, if someone wrote your rules, your house rules down, they would be specific. Like mom will wash the dishes, but if you do not get your dish to the sink by the time she's finished washing dishes, then you will wash the dish. And this is how you will do it. And if you had the chance to read those rules from someone else, imagine someone else's house rules, you would get a sense of what mattered to that family and their values which, of course, is why looking at God's law is kind of exciting because we're looking at God's house rules and getting a sense of what matters to God. And yet, of course, he's coming to live with sinful people. And so those laws are intended to transform them and help them take on the character traits of God's justice and generosity so that other nations could look at ancient Israel and be like, whoa, that's a different way to be human. That's what it's like to have God as a king. And so as we read the law, we're reading a story about God entering into a relationship with Israel. And we're seeing some specific examples of instructions he gave them to help them learn how to represent him. But of course, the laws that we read, like in Exodus and Deuteronomy, don't cover everything. They're, they're, they're more just like samples. And so Israel was going to have to think about how to put those laws into practice for sure, but Israel was also going to need ongoing guidance. Their situation was going to change. New things were going to come up. When God gave them the law originally, they were by Mount Sinai. They weren't even living in the land yet. And so, of course, their context was going to change, and there were going to be situations that came up that they didn't understand how to apply. And in Exodus chapter 23, if you go back, if you have time, and you can flip back to Genesis, Exodus, Exodus chapter 23, God tells them he is going to give them the help they need. Behold, I, I send an angel before you. This is verse 20 and 21. After he's given the law in the middle of this book of the covenant, behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. And we're not told much about the angel here, so we don't know how all this worked out in practice. But the basic idea is that God is anticipating their need for ongoing guidance, and they're supposed to come to him to get it. And we actually see that happening later in Leviticus 24. There is an example where there's a fight between two men in which one curses Yahweh. And uh, there was a law about that that seemed clear. But the Israelites didn't know what to do because the man wasn't a full Israelite. He was only a half Israelite. And so the elders needed to know, did that law apply to non-Israelites or half Israelites? And so you know what they did? Leviticus 24, 12, they put him in custody until the will of the Lord should be made clear to them. And Moses asked God, and God explained what to do, how to apply the law, which I think helps you understand the story Jesus tells in Luke chapter 6, because he says, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him. 
And you can read the story yourself sometime. It comes from 1 Samuel 21. But basically, David and his men are running from Saul. Saul was the supposed king of Israel, and David was God's chosen king for Israel. And yet David and his friends' lives are in danger at this point. And they get to the tabernacle, and they're, they're, they need food. And so they ask the high priest for some bread, and he's like, well, we don't have bread. And then he remembers, oh, yeah, we do have holy bread. And so this is a little bit complicated because here is a person in desperate need, and yet here we have a ceremonial law, a law where that says this bread's only supposed to be for the priests. And yet the, the priest looks at the situation that they're in and recognizes this is complex, especially because David is... Uh, the anointed, and David is here serving the king. And so what does the priest do? He goes to God, and God tells him to give the bread to David, which God had every right to do, because this is his home, and he's the actual king, God. He's the one in charge. And so it's like Jesus is saying, look, I'm the son of David. I'm God's chosen king. And so if that's how God interpreted the law in the case of David, it's surely how the law applies to me and my disciples as well, which means you're clearly getting something wrong because you have like this list of rules and regulations that you're so excited about. But when you go around trying to apply them to specific situations, it seems to me like you haven't even actually read the Old Testament and know how this works because I open up my Bible and I see that's not actually how it went down. And so it's like you're taking a position of authority that you have no right to. And in doing that, you're actually distorting the original intention of these laws, which is something that, not something that Luke brings up, but Matthew, when he tells the story, tells us that Jesus quotes Hosea 6 which says, if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. And there Hosea is basically calling out the priests, the religious leaders in Hosea's day. And so Jesus is saying, you know what? You're like them. In your supposed desire to honor the law, you are missing the whole point just like they did. And so you might be here saying, this is about the Bible. This is about the Bible, but it's not about the Bible. I opened up my Bible. That's not how it works. So what's it about then? It's about being in control. It's about being the one who's in charge. Why did Saul get upset at David, even though David was winning all those victories for him? Because if David was going to be the king, it meant he wasn't. The rituals we've got going on in our life can be great when God is king and when Jesus is the hero, but they can get really messed up when we're trying to use them to make ourselves king and acting like we have to be the hero which I think is the rebuke Jesus gives in verse 5. And he said to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And why does he say that? First of all, he's telling them something about himself, for sure. But he's also revealing something about them. If I'm Lord, you're not. If I'm Lord of the Sabbath, you're not the Lord of the Sabbath. Which explains why the Pharisees hated Jesus, because the law was a means for them to be in charge. That's why they were devoted to it. They liked the law as long as the one, they were the ones in charge of it. People love rules as long as they can use those rules to lift themselves up and put others down. But Jesus says, you know what? You can't come in here 
and tell me how I'm breaking your laws because I am the one who wrote the law in the first place. I am the one who gets to interpret the law, which is how the law was always supposed to function in Israel. It was the king who was supposed to study the law to be able to lead the people in righteousness. And Jesus is that king. He's arrived. He's the son of man. You can read Daniel chapter 7, and we'll get to this later in Luke. He, he's the one who God gave authority over all things. And so he's saying here, that means I'm the one who gets to explain what God intended to do with the Sabbath. And again, it's, it's really important we get this right. This isn't just like an old debate. As we think with rituals, we start with the approach first. Is what I am doing a proper response to what God's done through Jesus? Is it flowing out of faith in what God's done through Jesus? And we have to look at that. Second, because we really want to be the hero. We really want to be the ones in charge. And so we can use rituals, our daily rituals, to make it possible for us to live our lives like we're the heroes and the ones in charge. And sometimes what makes it really sad is we can use the Bible to justify that. But we are misinterpreting when we do that. And when we do that, if we don't repent, we do damage. And, and, and real quickly, chapter 6, verses 6 through 11. Third, let me give you an illustration of why this matters, why this is such a big deal, the, the damage this can do. And we're not going to do justice to this story, but it's almost like we're getting uh, here in chapter 6, verses 6 through 11, an illustration where these two different approaches to ritual and law will take us. Because Luke says, uh, verse 6, on another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. So it was paralyzed in some way. And so you can imagine him standing there. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find reason to excuse him which is just like shocking, it's, it's, but it's one way to use religious activity, right? Here's this person who's in need, and the Pharisees can't even see the need. Instead, they're seeing a person they can use to somehow promote themselves or tear down Jesus. But Jesus' attitude is far different, but he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And so this is like a test case. The Pharisees have been asking questions of Jesus all this time, and now he's like, uh, let me ask you a question. What did God actually intend to do with his law, this ritual, the Sabbath day? And the Pharisees give their answer by keeping quiet. And God gives his answer by healing the man. And after looking around at them all, he said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. Which is God saying, basically, that his law was given to teach how to love him and how to love our neighbors. And yet, look what happened when the Pharisees stuck themselves in the center. And they made the law about them being in charge. And made religious ritual about them being the hero and earning favor with God. What happened was they misinterpreted the law and turned it into something so ugly that when they saw a man with a withered hand and Jesus, who could heal him, standing there, they couldn't think, oh, I, help, I hope Jesus will help that man. All they could think was, 
he better not do this on the Sabbath. He better not do this on the Sabbath. Which is pretty perverted because here they were supposedly serious about doing good and yet they were being evil. Evil. And that's why you have to look at your approach to ritual, especially rit religious rituals, because the ritual may be good, but this is where a self-centered approach will take you. If it's mostly about you being happy, if it's mostly about you being in control, if it's mostly about you earning favor with God, if that's where you start, you will take good things and you'll find a way to make them bad. It's just so ironic, really, because if your goal is to be a good person so that everyone can know you're a good person and so that God can be impressed by the fact that you're a good person, you won't end up being a good person. Even if you're using good rituals. I mean, you could look at these Pharisees because this is a classic example of people who were giving their lives to that. And yet their attempts to use God's law to justify themselves and exalt themselves brought them to the point where one day they were standing in a synagogue with a man who needed to be healed and with someone who could heal him and who proved that he was who he said he was by being able to heal him. And yet when they saw that, you know the only thing they could think about? The only thing they could think about was how do we destroy him? Verse 11. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do with Jesus. For what? For healing a man on the Sabbath. And you know, you've got to look at the Pharisees and ask, how did it come to this? That's why we're doing all this work, because they were seriously religious people, and they knew murder was wrong. And yet here they are wanting to destroy Jesus for breaking one of their rules in a way that proved he was sent and approved by God. And I think the reason is pretty obvious and a little frightening. They, they got like this by starting off pointed in the wrong direction, by not connecting what they were doing for God to what God had done through Jesus. And by seeking to use religious rituals as a means to earn favor with God or to gain control over others. By making rituals primarily about them and not centering their religious activity on Jesus. How about you? What is your approach to rituals? We need rituals. And you've got rituals. We are people who live by rituals. You know why so many uh, professing Christians, this is for free, but you know why so many Christians even are so secular? It's because they've got a lot of secular rituals. They've, they're mostly living their lives by rituals they haven't thought about. And they got like one or two hours on Sunday where they get the religious ritual, but like six days of a week where they're doing secular rit rituals which are shaping them into secular people. And even as you raise your children, realize that. Don't be surprised if your children end up secular people because you've allowed them to be raised by secular rituals for six days of the week. We've got all kinds of rituals, and those rituals are important for us to look at because they have the power to shape us, to take us places very good and, and very bad. And so we have to evaluate. We have to be a little intentional. We have to ask, first of all, are they good rituals or bad rituals? But we've got to go further. 
And we've got to look at our basic approach. Are we centering our lives on Jesus and what God has done through him on a daily basis, on a weekly basis? Do the rituals that structure our lives make sense in light of that? Because he is the hero. He, he really is. And, and that is the fundamental truth on which you have to build the rest of your life. He is the one who's going to reverse the curse. He's the one who takes away shame. He is the one who provides forgiveness of sin. He's the one who saves sinners. He's the one who fulfills God's plan. He's the one who's in charge of telling us what to do. And while I know most of you know that and you believe that, the question is, does the way you go about your daily, weekly rituals reflect that? Because you've got a lot of people telling you what to do with your body and with your mind. And you've been trained a long time in how to approach life to the point where you don't even necessarily think about it anymore. You just assume, which is really helpful in a lot of ways, but can also be dangerous if you don't let Jesus and who he is and what God has done through Jesus redefine your approach. You might end up a little like the Pharisees, a religious looking good on the outside, but actually arguing with Jesus and going the opposite direction with your life. Let's pray. Your word's amazing, God. You speak. You speak. You speak to us. And some of these stories seem so out there at first, and then we dig in and we just hear you talking to us and and reshaping us. And we just ask, Lord, that you would make our ears bigger and our hearts bigger so that we would listen. And you would make us humble so that we would be willing to really change. And God, I pray that this message will mess with us this next week, that we'll think about it, that we'll ask questions about it, and uh, that you'll help us to apply it, not just to be hearers of the word, uh, but to be doers. Because, Lord Jesus, we got a lot of things we do in our life, but we don't want to be delusional. We don't want to be building our lives based on a story that's not true. We want to build our lives and do what we do in response to what's real. And what's real, Jesus, is you are the hero. You are the hero. You are our savior. Help us to live lives in this world that reflect that. And we pray this in your name. Amen.